Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. I am Christy Porter of Vector Global Logistics, and today, joined with my cohort in crime, my partner in crime, and one of the people I love to chat with, Maureen Wuschlager. How are you, Maureen? Hi, Christy. How are you doing this Wednesday? I am good. We've had some good interviews lately, you and I. We have another one teed up. You've been telling me about this one behind the scenes, and mm-hmm. I'm finally excited to talk to today's guest as well, which I will let you do the honors of introducing. Yeah, well, everybody, welcome Sam Berman, CEO and founder of Lark. Welcome to the show, Sam. Oh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we're happy we could get this on the calendar and schedule us. We want to talk to you about your product and your company. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll hear in a few minutes about how you're sort of shaking up the industry, heading us into a direction we all need to be going. But First, we want to hear just a little more about you personally. So if you can tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and your childhood and those those early years. Yeah. So originally from Georgia, but uh, grew up in Los Angeles. Strange thing, you know, a little Southern kid growing up in Los Angeles, but that's what happened. Spent sort of my formative years there. Went to UCLA, but I have to admit, never graduated. I'm kind of one of those guys, a serial (laughs) entrepreneur that doesn't want to be told what to do ever. (laughs) <laughs> so did that, spent after that, spent a career in Silicon Valley and you could go days into what that whole thing's about, but probably the reason I lost most of my hair and pretty stressed out in general. But yeah, I did that. I've been kind of a serial entrepreneur. I've had a number of companies. I've started from toy companies, app companies, but I've been a logistics guy for many, many years. And some of the companies I started were logistics software companies. Uh, and my latest one is Lark. I started that about six years ago in California, restarted here. I live now in Nashville, Tennessee. Restarted with my partner, Chris Taylor, who's our COO and co-founder. And it was really set up just to look at logistics from a very different standpoint. You know, One of the things I learned about logistics a long time ago was that it's very archaic. I mean, when I started back years ago, we were still using fax machines and people weren't communicating very well. And so I started some software companies to help with that type of thing. But really, it's still for what is really the largest industry in the world. You know, most people don't know that. They think of healthcare or defense. It's really logistics and supply chain. It's very arcane. There's not a lot of technology. It's starting to happen. Uh, and we looked at it and said, you know, we need something that's really like a dark bus. So LARC is actually an acronym. It's Logistics Advanced Research Center. And so we really focus on packaging and systems, helping companies really solve those problems that sometimes they don't even know they have. It's kind of in a nutshell. It's, where I come from, where I'm at now, and looking forward to talking about it. Well, I don't want to back. I don't want to go forward too much though, because before we started, you're going to have to reveal to everybody your fun fact and why you're a big deal in Japan. <laughs> oh no, I, it was yeah. <laughs> well, I wow. was going to ask what's I, I, the story from his childhood. So yeah, maybe they you asked can talk for, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just oh my god, I can't believe you just said that to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> When I was about 11 years old, I got asked to be in a, a commercial for a Japanese product and with a bunch of friends of mine playing baseball. And during one of the scenes, I was playing catcher and I tagged the guy out at the plate. And he was clearly out, but the umpire called him safe. And being a hot-blooded 
fellow that I am, I threw my mask down and kind of screamed at the umpire and they caught it on camera. I guess it ended up in the commercial and somehow it became sort of a big thing for a little bit there in Japan. And sometimes once in a while when I was a kid in Los Angeles, uh, Japanese tourists would kind of recognize me a little bit because I was kind of like, it was curly hair, you know, easy to spot. So I guess that I thought, as I told you earlier, I thought this podcast was my 15 minutes of fame, but clearly I've had it already at the yeah. age of 11, 12. So yeah, that's my big story. No, it's just chapter one. This is chapter two that's of chapter your, one. That's it's chapter like one. your next I hope, I hope that's not, yeah, and that's not the pinnacle of my life, I hope. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I will be, however, searching YouTube for that commercial later. Yeah, keep, keep, keep looking. Let me know if you find it. Yes. <laughs> it was pre-iPhone. It was probably on one of those big, big yeah. video cameras. Oh, it was. You, it was. Like, they, you actually recorded onto the VHS. And let's wonder how many of our viewers actually know what the VHS is. But Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I actually did it just to get out of school. So of it, was, it was. I tripped over my... My, that my was grade. actually pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. other than the Japanese baseball commercial, mm-hmm. are there is there another story from your childhood that possibly helped shape who you are today? Wow. That boy, I didn't see how come. Or was oh. that the only one? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that, that's it. That was it. That was the pinnacle of my life. No, I mean I'd have to I'd have to think about it. I grew up in Los Angeles. Like I said, you know, it was a very different environment for me. I grew up with a very yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir type of thing. And I'll tell you a very funny story. The first time I ever had over, I moved from Georgia to California. He called my mother by her first name. And I thought at that point, the earth was going to open up and swallow us all whole because <laughs> where I was from, that just didn't happen. Right. And the way my mom looked at me, I'll never forget. But that was just kind of some of the funny things that happened when, you know, sort of, you can kind of write a book about this kid from the South living in Los Angeles. But no, yeah, there are a lot of things kind of like shape my life. You know, I, to, on a more serious note, you know, my father passed away when I was quite young. I was 16 years old and uh, that really shaped my life and made me go off in a direction of sort of, you know, having to take care of myself. And really, I think it, my mother had run her own company, his own company. I think my life would be more of an entrepreneur. I have a, uh, a distinct disdain for authority at some level. I'm going to question everything and challenge everything. I can't stand the status quo. And I'm just one of those guys who I'm always coming up with an idea and I try and execute on it. And I see blank canvases wherever I go, or I look at things and I say, wow, you know, we can make that better. So it's sort of annoying to, to people at some level, but I'm that kind of type A personality as a result that I've been very self-driven, self-motivated, had to kind of grow up pretty fast. And I've done a lot of things. I'm a guy who wears many hats. And I mentioned earlier, I never, I went to college, but remember, here's a great story. I was sitting in college one day. I'd gone to Santa Monica College, paying my own way, transferred to UCLA, sitting in a Western civics class one day. And uh, this guy's talking about how to bribe cops in Mexico if you get pulled over, this professor. And this is the whole extent of this. And the whole class is going on about this story. And I said to myself, I paid how much out of my own pocket to be here? I, this is literally true. I, I stood up. I walked out of the room. I walked over to the dean's office. I said, I want my money back. And I got my car and I never went back to college. No, wow. just, Not for me. I'd, instead of spending money, I'd rather just go make money. Now, hey, parents out there, don't blame me if your kids see this podcast okay. and have that conversation. But I do believe in that, you know, as far as education goes, I believe a lot in self-education. I think formal education, if you're going to be a professional in some way, engineer, doctor, Indian chief, whatever you're going to do there, I do think that a college has its role. But I'm starting to think more and more that it doesn't. I think really? people really should get out there and get experience and start to learn. There's a lot you can learn in 2023 that doesn't revolve sitting around a class and what someone deemed an expert. And I really think challenging the status quo and challenging the experts, 
that's how we move things forward. That's called entrepreneurship. And it's a bit of a blood sport, but at the end of the day, it also is something that, that people say, well, I don't have any experience in that. We'll figure it out. Go, if you're going to build a better mousetrap, you got to envision something that's never been built. You know, you got to do something that's never been done. And that's kind of the way I drive my life. So uh, a bit, like I said, I can be a bit intense, but uh, in general, that's what it takes to, to do this kind of job. So, sure. Well, yeah. let me ask you then, since you didn't graduate from college, you spent there, you went another direction. Yeah. Sounds like obviously it's going to work out for you in the end. Spoiler. I'll, I'll let you know. Yes. Don't but, give away the ending, Christy. Come on. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Stay tuned. But I am curious from, that is a big decision at a very young point in your life when most of us really don't know what we're doing or how we're going to function or what's happening and we're getting to know the world in a new way. So if from that time, those early days that you were like, okay, let me just go make money. What are a couple of those lessons from around the, just the beginnings of that and what that looked like? Yeah. I mean, the lesson number one, it's hard. But anything worth doing is hard, right? It takes focus. It takes discipline. You're going to do a lot of things you don't want to have to do, but you're going to come out of that with a much broader understanding of how the world really works. You know, I know a lot of people having worked in Silicon Valley as an executive that they would come in and say, Hey, I've got, you know, a bachelor's degree in this and a master's degree in this. And you say, okay, I need you to go do this function. And they, they quickly realized that, that life is not a classroom right? Life is not what a professor told you it will necessarily be. It is, it works in a very different way. And so getting that real world experience is critical. And, you know, the thing that you're going to learn in that role is that there is no substitute for hard work. There's no substitute for just grinding things out and that you have to be a grinder to, to get things done. And that no, no, the world's never going to be the path to your door. I always tell people, you can invent the greatest product that the world has ever known. And at the end of the day, there's this idea that, man, they're just going to just come and get it. And it just never works out that way. And so the number one thing, and I tell my own children, this is you can be, my, my children are bright and they're frankly talented in many, many myriad of ways. I say, none of it matters unless you're willing to put them to work. And that really is true. And when you invent something like what we do at LARP, like we invent state-of-the-art reusable packaging systems for high-end electronics and robotics and data servers and all this kind of stuff, what you realize very quickly is that it doesn't matter how good that product is unless you can get out there and really push your vision and let people understand it. The truth is, the truth is that the world is very locked in, right? We used to be an entrepreneurial system. Our country, greatest country that's existed in world history was built on the small business owner, the entrepreneur who would just grind it out. And now so much is consolidated to big companies and, and people start businesses for the wrong reason. This is something I've learned. Never start a company if your vision is, we're going to build it up and then sell it to somebody else. You will fall down every time. Not, well, not every time because some, some people, sure. they're set up from that from the beginning. But if you really want to build, you better do it from the perspective, I'm going to build an empire. Because if you do it from a short-term perspective, you're going to make short-term decisions. And you're not going to be doing it for the well-being of the company and the idea and the product. You're just trying to get to a goal versus build that empire, which I think in this country, in this world, we need a lot more empire builders and a lot fewer. I'm going to build a, something and sell it off a little widget, right? We need visionaries and we need big, big thinkers out there who are willing to absolutely not just change the status quo, but absolutely destroy it. And it's strange because I, when I talk to some people at big companies, they find that statement, if I make that offensive. 
what are the people going to do? You're going to lose their jobs. And see, there's something in this world called creative destruction. It's how we drive the world forward. And the entire world is set up this way. If you think about, I always tell, like I look at my wife who birthed two children, right? I go, boy, that's the greatest creative destruction I've ever seen because what that does to you is unbelievable, but what it brings into the world is remarkable. We cannot sit on our laurels. We cannot sit on, this is how stuff is done. This is how we continue to do things all the time. We have to be willing to destroy the old. And it's the reason we're not driving around horse and buggy right now. It's the reason we're driving state-of-the-art automobiles and we can get on an airplane and fly across 3,000 miles in five hours. It's creative destruction, but we need to get rid of that mindset. So you asked me a simple question, I think about my childhood about 17 minutes ago. So I'll stop, I'll take a breath and then jump back in here. Thank you. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you've had quite an interesting career path and it hasn't always been in the supply chain logistics space. Can you talk to us a little bit about your entrance into that? Because you mentioned Silicon Valley and being out in LA and entrepreneurship. There is, like you also mentioned, supply chain logistics operation is a very sort of antiquated industry in a lot of ways. So how did you make that jump or did you dip your toes in? Did you jump right in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Buckle up on this if you want the story here. <laughs> so, you know, my, my mother actually, I said she had a company. She had, a, I believe, a typesetting company. And when I say that, most people don't know what I'm talking about. Metal type. I mean, it goes way back. And actually, desktop publishing from Apple sort of wiped that industry out. And so transitions were made into other marketing. So I got, I kind of cut my teeth in marketing, learning from my mother and working a little bit for her. And I worked with a number of ad agencies and some of the largest ones, some of the smaller ones, and really learned quickly, I didn't want to be in that business. If you ever watched the show Madden, then it was that. I mean, it really was crazy like that. And so I got away from that, but I, I learned a lot about marketing and I, I moved to Silicon Valley, ended up working in the semiconductor space for a while in marketing. And part of what I did was getting stuff printed that we got mailed out. And one day I just saw that it was costing a lot of money to ship stuff. So I went and negotiated a deal that cut the cost in half and our CEO, a guy named Jack Gifford, I was working called Max at the time. He asked somebody, what happened? He looked at the line and he said, what happened right here? How did this happen? And the analyst said, oh, Sam did that. He said, I'm going to talk to him. I'm being called into the principal's office. So I go in and he says, you're the new head of our shipping. And I said, wait, what? I'm the head of what? He said, yeah, you're, the, you're going to handle all of our shipping company-wide. I said, wow. why is that? He says, because you cut this 50%. I said, that was one phone call. I made to change something. And so I had a, uh, fortunately, it's interesting. I wasn't formally trained in it. And I think that was more of an advantage than a curse, right? Because I didn't know. And when you don't know, you just do what makes sense, right? I'm not, I wasn't sort of saddled to a thousand years of this is how the carton mule pulled this thing. And this is how we're going to do it today, which actually is funny because that's one the lark we face is that we face that sort of territorial imperative or that historical imperative that but we've always done it this way, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that every new venture faces is that that cultural shift, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I got into that business. I had started a number of companies. I, my first company was I was a kid. I a buddy of mine. I, I started a surfboard repair company. Strange, but that's what we did. And we ended up fixing some of the boards for the best surfers in the world, oh. right? And didn't know anything about it, but got the equipment and we went to work and just worked hard. And ultimate time, I like to do things concurrently because why not? I'm not busy enough. So I started a toy company. I invented a toy called Tickle Monsters that were really, really popular for a while. Little things you put on your hands, tickle kids. And I saw it because I saw a mom actually tickle her daughter with a little puppet on her hand. I said, 
that's kind of an interesting idea. So I wrote a little book about it. I happened to be an illustrator, artist too. So I illustrated and did all that kind of stuff. Started a logistics software company at the same time. That's I sold that, gosh, 2011. Um, I've started an app. I, 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 again, I used to write, illustrate children's books. And so I started an app company. And you sleep? That, I'm just curious. Like, what's the trick? Do you sleep? I do, yeah. but not enough. And I'm just, I'm just one of those guys, like, like an idea comes, I say, I think I like to build that. Um, right. I think market for that. I don't spend a lot of time on it saying, I think I'll delve into 18 months of market research. And right. because some things that are sort of obvious, right? There's some things that are sort of just make, that would make a lot of sense. So yeah. how I tend to build ideas I have to kind of hold myself back from doing because then I get sidetracked. It's just, again, it's just one of the things that, that it, is the key to success. And Chris, you asked me what I learned earlier from all this stuff is success sort of breeds success. And the only way to get there is action, action, action. You just, you have to keep moving forward. You're going to fall down a thousand times. People are going to do crazy things, nutty things are going to happen to you, but you just keep driving, driving, driving. And eventually, you know, something clicks. And so, yeah, from there, the Silicon Valley, I spent my time there, had enough of that. It's, you could go on, you could have a thousand podcasts talking about Silicon Valley and yeah. it happens in that place. But about seven years ago, I just looked at my wife and said, something's got to change. I, yeah, I'm done with the ridiculous <laughs> taxes. I'm done with trying to get companies off the ground in this environment. I said, we're, we're going to move back to the South. And we picked up and, and moved our family here to Nashville, Tennessee. And I closed Lark down in California, restarted it with my partner, Chris, here. And we've been going kind of gangbusters ever since. So not that it's been an absolute trajectory uphill, but you know, it's, yeah. uh, we, we've been moving forward ever since. Love that. Well, let's dig into Lark. So yeah. L-A-R-C for yeah. um, people listening, Lark, um, tell us what it is and also where the inspiration came from. What, why was this an idea that you had to act on? Okay, I'll start there and I'll tell you what Lark is. This is the absolute Silicon Valley story at lunch with a guy. He had asked me to come in and help diversify his company. And I said, okay, so I'm at lunch with him. And he takes a phone call. He owns a creating company or he has a creating company. Gets off the phone and says, oh man, I've got all these starter rocks coming in for the next three or four weeks. And I got to create them all. And I said, well, how much do those crates cost? He said, oh, they're about $1,200 a piece. And I just went, wait, what? You're talking millions of dollars of crates. And they get, majority of those get used one time and thrown out. It's crazy. You right? mean like so, the wooden ones? Is that what you wooden, mean? Wooden, like, wooden, wooden okay. crates. Yeah. Wooden yeah, yeah. crates. And the vast majority, I mean, 90 to 95% of those are used one time. And then someone right. paid some little dispose of them. And so I, I literally said, why don't you just put a big giant tube around these things and chip them out like a cardboard tube? Why do you build it? Why do you spend all this time? Yeah. And he actually, ah, he's going to go to the restroom. And so I literally asked the waitress, I said, hey, can I grab a, a napkin and a pen real quick? I just have an idea. <laughs> and so I, I sketched this out and I went, I think that'll work. And so then I went home and I, here's the extent of my market research. I did a little, probably an hour on it. I said, oh my gosh, there's $2 billion worth of wood crates built around server racks, just server racks alone. I thought, I think there's a market here. And so I went and hired an industrial designer, did some design work on it. And as we were designing, I said, oh my gosh, I think we've invented something, not just for moving one product. I think we may have invented something for moving thousands of products. And so... Again, brought that out to Tennessee. My partner, Chris, is a mechanical engineer, a lot of international experience. And so we spent a lot of time engineering a solution that ended up becoming a platform 
not just a super magical box. It's a platform that you can build all kinds of different fixturing systems on. So we move everything from server racks to robotics to high-end consolidations. There's uh, We're talking with folks now about moving luxury brand products because they're stolen. And we've invented a new thing that's a high security ver- version of our box. It's funny, so I was saying, so not me. I was talking to some folks over in Europe and they make these women's shoes and purses. And I said, well, how much is each one? I said, well, this one's 35000 I said, excuse me? I said, for one heel? I said, I think my wife's going to need some samples of those to, for the shipping. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We're going to test the products. We're going to test those products for you. But it is there's a sort of insanity to that, right? That some will do. Mm-hmm. But even in the worst of times, those things are selling and they're incredibly high value targets. Yeah, but... On the second side of your question, what is LARC? LARC, as an instant acronym, means Logistics Advanced Research Center. And the goal is to really inject really high-end engineering and kind of solutions into the problems that exist in logistics. And a couple of the big problems today, and we hear them as buzzwords, are environment and security, right? And so with environment, If you have a reusable container in R3 tier, for example, every time that you use one of them, it saves two trees from being cut down, three gallons of fuel, a lot of... So it's a huge thing for a company that switches to a reusable packaging system. And people give us briefs that say, those things are made out of plastic. So say, yeah, they're made out of plastic that you're going to use a thousand times, right? And then you're going to recycle that and make it into a new crate and use that a thousand times. So it really... We don't just take and make a great product like we really try and put solutions around it. So we're partnered with a number of, we're partnered with the UPS, Pegasus Logistics, AIT, Aeronet. So they go out and we wrap their services around our product. And then we engineer solutions. So we say, all right, this might be a high value foundation. We're going to engineer a solution to hold that onto our platform, put our walls on, put our lid on, ship it out, maybe put our electronics in there to track it. We have covers for security. We have locking bars, whatever you need. We build it for them. And so what we've really developed into is an engineering solutions company where, where people will come to us and say, I've got this thing. I've got to ship it. I got so many of them. Can you build a system that, so we'll engineer a system that goes around it, locks it down in place, puts our walls on, put the lid on, ship it out. And I'll tell you something we're very proud of. We have never, knock on wood, damaged a piece of cargo in one of our crates. Wow. And so we, Hold back because I always tell companies, if you're the company that actually does it, that damages one of our crates, we're going to give you a trophy. But we've had them knocked off of trucks. We've had them fall off a forklift for mishandling. Everything happened, we've never damaged a piece of cargo. We're very proud of that. But uh, yeah, I can get in more of the sort of the detail yeah. of the weeds. But uh, yeah, I mean, we make, at the end of the day, we make a super cool, magical, reusable crate system to ship all kinds of different products. They fold flat. So I, a three-tier will go out and ship back as a one-tier because it all folds into itself. And we're helping this company solve those environmental issues, those cargo damage issues, yeah. those security issues. Hey, we talked to a company recently had $100 million in pilferage in their product. Wow. $100 million. And they said, well, does it matter yeah. <laughs> at this point if it fixes that problem? So we solve a lot of problems. You know, the cool thing about Lark is we're a very small company. And we work hand in glove with our customers because we want to be a part of the entire solution set. So we'll bring one of our partners, we'll we'll look at their entire network, their entire system, and we'll work with them to create an entire soup to nut solution. If all I was doing was saying, here's a really cool box, good luck, it just doesn't work. And that's not who we want to be. And even our business model is very different 
because we don't sell crates. We actually have creating our packaging as a service. So we actually lease them monthly. We provide solutions to fix them. We provide parts if something breaks on them. And so you're always getting a whole crate. You're always getting something that is workable for you. And you get with, with part of that. So we're always right there with you trying to solve those problems. And we have a different business model in terms of our core is just a small group of four people, but we have concentric groups around us that do different things. And that allows us to be incredibly flexible, incredibly fast. So take a wood crate, for example, my cost $1,400. It's going to take a day to get that built. I can send you mine. You can pack up your stuff and ship it out by the time that thing is built. And I'm going to charge you far less than that wood crate model. And so people always assume that we're going to be more expensive, for example, and we're not. And because of the way we do things. I'm going to lease you my crate on a monthly basis. You're going to use it two, three times. Great. Mm. I don't care what you put in it. And then you're going to, if it gets damaged, we're going to fix it, replace it, whatever. And then you're going to continually just cycle through the cycle through it. And the the cost goes way down. And really what's neat about that is people think, oh gosh, companies, they greenwash everything. You got to spend green to be green. Not if you rethink how you do it, right? So we're actually a green solution with better protection, better security, better visibility that is actually far superior to the current model and we're far less expensive. Mm-hmm. And so it's really an idea of just how do we work together? How do we have common interests? How do we have a shared economy on this? If I have a customer who has a return of crate because they're not using it, I can move it over to another customer. I only have to make it once. Right. Right. Maybe repair it, that kind of thing. So, but we're always looking at other things and I don't want people to think, well, these guys make a really cool box. They're packaging engineers. We're not packaging engineers. Anything we're mechanical engineers and systems engineers. But we're really just solutions providers that come in and try and say, here's the cutting edge. This is how we solve the problem. Very cool. Well, I mean, you talked a little bit kind of in circular about innovation, but, you know, your website, you talk about beyond the box and innovation in the logistics industry. So can you talk a little bit about that uh, more? I mean, you've mentioned it, you know, by product of your talking about the company, but specifically mentioning your website. Is there a story or a case study or something that you've used to demonstrate that? Yeah. So let me talk about why beyond the box. Yeah. Early on, one of the things, you know, there's buzzwords there, and the, the one that's most cliche is, oh, think outside of the box. And yeah. someone literally said that to me early on. I said, hey, think outside of the box. I said, how about we just get rid of the box? Stop yeah. thinking outside. Just get rid of the box. Let's do yeah. something entirely new. It's like, let's just build the box. And so, you know, as far as innovation goes, innovation, companies spend billions of dollars thinking, we've got to discover innovation. We've got to, you know what innovation is? Innovation is what I talked about earlier. It's trial and error. It's failing quickly at something and redoing it. And it's going out and just trying and action and building things and just keep building it until it works. That's a real innovation. Everyone thinks here's a magic pill that there's some kind of, this is how we've got to get experts. And experts in innovation are knuckleheads like me who come in and say, I think I could do that better. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's Philo Farnsworth who builds the television set. No one even knows the guy's name, but the, he's the guy that did it, right? Or Marconi, who people say, oh, he invented the radio, but it was actually Nikola Tesla who did. It's like people just go out there, the tinkerers, the builders, the guys working in their garage, the Hewlett's and the Packers, literally, the Steve Jobs, the Lozniak, those guys are out there just tinkering their garage. Just think, why not do something different? Why not build something better? I tell people, Wood crates are awesome. We used to have an ad that we put out on LinkedIn and so forth. And it showed a wooden crate that was found in an Egyptian tomb from 4,000 years ago. I said, wow, we've really come a long way, haven't we? We, Mm -hmm. I said, the only difference, and I put it next to a crate, a modern crate. I said, the only difference between these two crates 
is that this one's in a landfill and this one's in a museum in Cairo. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that we have not built anything new in 4,000 years, whether it's from a barrel full of rum or gunpowder, or it's a it's an Egyptian crate moving papyrus reeds, right? This was the same thing. And so innovation is just being willing to challenge everything and everyone. But it creates the problem of, well, that's how we've always done it. We've always cut down trees and processed them with thousands of different chemicals and put them on trucks for 3,000 miles before they reach you to get assembled with nails and everything else. Stuck your million-dollar piece of equipment in this wood box. And then shipped it somewhere another 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 miles, took your stuff out of there, and then threw that into a landfill. It's, it, mm-hmm. If you look at it on paper, it's insanity, right? Mm-hmm. That's how we've always done it. So that's how we're going to do it. Right. So innovation really is just look at something and say, well, that's dumb. I can, I can do that better. And as human beings, we do that a thousand times a day. Yeah. We might be driving our car. One, one of the stories, look, there's a guy, I don't remember his name, but he invented this thing that goes in your car that fills the gap between your seat and the console next to you because he kept dropping things in it. This thing caught the things. I thought, absolute genius, right? Mm-hmm. I think the guy made a boatload of money doing this, right? And so invent, innovation, invention, it truly is just out of necessity or need for doing something better. And I find the world interesting today in that we don't do that a lot. People think, for example, oh, gosh, these electric cars are amazing. Look at these. You know the first car built were electric? They were. They ran on batteries. Most people don't know that, but it's a fact. Others ran on wood and coal, right? And so we think we are inventing things. We're just reinventing things sometimes. And so real innovation is where you are absolutely willing to challenge everyone and everything and do it differently. And you will face mountains of dissent. You'll face mountains of people trying to stop you. You'll face mountains of negativity. When, when I invented, I told you I've been in a toy called Tickle Monster. And one guy at a, at a meeting walked to me, he goes, well, I could have made that. I said, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. There's so many things I have to Google after this podcast yeah, yeah. to see. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm a font of worthless knowledge. If if you ever need a part on Jeopardy, I'm uh, or or we you like the um the what is it called for who wants to be a millionaire? The phone a friend, yeah, yeah. Like phone, I'll give you my number. I yeah. am really I actually rock at Trivial Pursuit. But in seriousness, though, I mean th- these are the things people talk about being educated. Hey, I've got a college degree and whatever, but they don't know the basics of. But this is how you do stuff, right? Because you learn. So go, go read. I just put out, essentially, I just put out something on LinkedIn. When I used to interview people in Silicon Valley, one question I asked absolutely every time is tell me the last three books you read and why you chose them. And you want to talk about how you become an innovator? Read everything you can read. I was stunned by how many people told me, well, I don't really read. Yeah. Uh, so, well, what do you mean? Well, no, I don't, I don't have time, but you, how do you grow? How do you learn? How do you gather the wisdom of the past so that you can move something forward and they just don't do it. And so you want to talk about what innovating the future is understanding the past, right? And so when I talk about a 4,000 year old system, I'm not joking. I mean, it really has been 4,000 years, Right. right? And now it's time to change that. Right. And it's time to change the way we do things. But there's pains. All all innovation is painful. All 
creativity is destruction. And so, you know, even if you look at the painters of the past or the great artists, you look at, you know, they'd go from the Renaissance to another form, to another form, to another form. And you could see how they grew off each other, but some were so shocking. So you see uh, Pablo Picasso and you say, I mean, that's just shockingly different than Vermeer, right? And you say, but someone changed some, someone saw a vision, someone saw, you know, the movies from the 1950s are very different than the movies today for the 1951, actually, but things have to advance, things have to change, and you have to be willing to absolutely just crush the status quo. Yeah. So that's innovation. You have to be a destroyer of things. When I tell my son, my 17-year-old son, I tell him all the time, I said, Name's Nathaniel. I said, it's Nathaniel, you, if you really want to be successful, be willing to destroy what was before. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about me. Don't come after me. He's bigger than me. Yeah. But you must be willing to destroy what people believe worked before. Because mm -hmm. so many times, and so many times, people don't understand that the old way of doing things might not be the right way. Oftentimes, you're going to find the old way is an even better way. You just have to refine it a little bit. So. Sometimes it just seems easier or it's, like you said, the status quo or the paradigm and you need some sort of disrupting event or product coming into the market or to really think about things a little bit differently. But that's what entrepreneurs bring to the table, I think, is that mindset that does kind of challenge the the way it's always been done. And so there is a balance because the constant pushback from the status quo does make you continually try and disrupt the system and think of more creative ways to challenge it. So it is like this rubber band going back and forth. But I definitely agree. There's quite a bit of innovation out there and you guys are really leading with that right now. Certainly seen well, some uh, disruption like the pandemic for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before well, I ask you another question about Lark, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are some book recommendations? <laughs> uh, I don't really read. No. Um, <laughs> End of time for reading. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of history, actually. Right now, I'm reading two books. Currently, I'm reading The 100 Greatest Artists in History. And I'll tell you my favorite. I actually mentioned before it was Johannes Vermeer. If you haven't seen Vermeer's work yet, it's shocking. People think the Mona Lisa is amazing. Go look at the girl with the pearl earring, the mm -hmm. shocking piece of work. But so I, I love learning about art because art is history. I'm also, what else am I reading? So I, I'm reading a book called Dominion right now about the history of Christianity and how it changed all of history. So again, there's nothing new under the sun. And once you learn what was, you will learn what is and what's to come. Everything, the, the world serves go, goes like that. I just finished a biography of John Paul Jones, the first sort of naval officer of the United States. Read a lot of magazines. I've, I have Scottish descent, so I've been into Scottish history lately. I'm reading a lot about that. Yes, I have watched Outlander in case anyone wants to know. What else? Yeah, just a lot of history lately. I tend to get it. I just, I'm sort of re revisiting some of the classics right now. I just read The Scarlet Pimpernel. That's okay. that. He's sort of the first action hero. Kind of, that so much. Yeah. You know, it's a whole series of books. There's like 20 of them. No. Okay. I'll have yeah, to look into yeah. that because I've read that one two or three times. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually was just revisiting and reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's funny because I think, again, people with their lack of knowledge of history will say something, oh, hey, you're this or that. Or, you know, like, you never read that book. We don't understand what you're even saying. But mm -hmm. I, I'm trying, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, my son is named after that author. And so I, I was sort of, you know, how Seven Gables love the Scarlet Letter. And so I try and kind of balance it out. 
I spend so much of my time looking at computers and reading technical issues or working with Chris and his engineering forums. I'm not an engineer. I'm a logistician. So I don't really, you know, understand the mechanics of everything, but I, I've learned over time. So I, I've sort of made a study of that as well. This could be a whole other podcast talking about books. And, but yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. I, I love that. Oh, that's terrific. I'm going to have to look at some of those or revisit some of those as well. And speaking of just sort of the innovation, what you've learned, and one of the things I really said, really interested that you said, obviously, the RC is Research Center. So you talked about we don't just make a box, we create solutions and systems and all of that. So you also included in that big topic for today's world, technology. So talk about some of the technology that comes along with these services and how you're solving problems there. Yeah, so a lot of our technology is in the mechanical engineering space and the sort of innovation of fixturing systems that we use. We're not just pushing things in a crate and shutting it and putting a bunch of foam around it. Like we don't have a single solution that uses foam. Because you can't say, hey, we're a green company and then slap a lot of foam on top of it and say, hey. Yeah, it's true. But a lot of innovation comes around just the engineering of the crates itself. Our crates build up like a Lego system. It was really difficult to get a system that was modular. that would be stronger than a wood crate, but it is double wall, hollow, never had a penetration to one of our crates. The way they interlock, we have a number of patents on our products, but you really aren't around fixing systems and what we call a box in a box solution where it comes around and really hugs the cargo. Because it's reusable, we can spend a little more time, money, resources on making it really robust. And so we close down around that X, Y axis and really secure it because what most people don't know about shipping is most damage is not done when a box jumps or falls. It's done when it moves like this, especially in the XY plane, especially when it, well, there's electronics involved. Things tend to break or delaminate. So we really spend a lot of time doing that. Um, have to secure high-end optics or a million-dollar surgical robot. We really have to make sure that is really snug in there. And so a lot of our technology comes around control for vibration and shock dampening. We have our pallet has a kind of a state-of-the-art dampening system on it. It's got 18 shock and vibration dampeners on it. And we can tune those to different frequencies. But most of what we do from a technology perspective comes from just how we engineer solutions for maintaining and managing the cargo in the interior. We also are partnered with a company Tithe out of Boston for our tracking. They make great tech. I've been a great company to work with. So we don't make our own tracking tech because that is an area that's it's a whole other beast. We looked at doing it, but we just said, we're going to... The idea, at the end of the day, I want to have a burger joint that makes a burger, the best burger in the world. I don't want to be all things to all people, right? I just want everyone, I want to line at my door because I'm in and out burger, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone knows that burger is going to be good every single time. And so right. that's what we're really trying to do at Lark. And so we bring in partners who have state-of-the-art technology and we don't really spin our wheels or waste our time going down that path. So... Yeah, but the, the other cool thing about that is, you know, one of the things we don't do well in in the world today, especially in business, is we don't really collaborate very well. We say, wow, those guys have a really cool tech. Those guys have a really cool tech. What happens if we just marry all this stuff up and make a super tech? And that's kind of what we do. So it allows us to be small, really fast. And to give you a, we tell them we're super fast. So the core of LARP is, is myself and Chris Taylor, Okay. And we have people around us, but at the end of the day, decisions are made within seconds. It might not be the right decision, but it's going to be made. And we're going to correct it if it's wrong. And then we can design, engineer, prototype something within like weeks or 10, eight, 10 days sometimes. And it just blows our competition out of the water. So we're going to go through a whole process and layers of management. 
okay, you have fun with that. We've got a product here. It's already done and we're going. So yeah, it's, it's about speed. It's about vision. It's about being willing to fail fast and fix and stop finding those right partners out there, whether they be customers, whether they be logistics partners. One, one of the customers we work with that we're, we can talk about, we work with Schneider Electric and how they were stacking trucks only 35 inches high. And then our system allowed them to put four of these units in each crate and stack those crates three high. In a 53-foot trailer, you could put 66 of our crates into it. And so they were able to get rid of a number of not just trucks, but processing time because we worked with their people in the in factory, in the field, say, how do you do this? How can we engineer a better solution? So I think they cut their processing time by 40 or 50%. I think it'll cut out one or two trucks a week. And so our crate really is just the, the sort of the focal point of starting a discussion for how we can make it, make the system better around the crate. And it's interesting because it's a reverse. So most people see shipping and packaging as the end of the long thing. If you are really good at logistics and you say, I'm going to see everything from A to Z and you say, I'm going to take this package, I'm going to move it to the front and I'm going to make my whole processing through the system based on this platform, things speed up dramatically, right? Here's a good example. When you move server racks, they, the cabinets come empty from a manufacturer. They usually come on a kind of a wood pallet. The integrator who puts racks in there, or blades in there, usually takes it off of that pallet, puts it on another pallet to move it through a system. What happens now if I move my pallet all the way to the manufacturer of the cabinet it just moves through system all the way. How much time, money, resources, energy you save in doing that? And so logistics in general, most people don't really understand it. I used to be called, and it used to drive me out of my mind. They call it, oh, you're the shipping guy. Yeah, I'm the shipping guy. <laughs> I, just, I take this box, I put this label on it, and like magic, unicorn, tear, right. <laughs> all on it, and it just appears 8,000 miles away. Right. The supply chain logistics is the most complex thing. And I used to teach people, I used to, here, here's something funny. I, as so I didn't finish college, but I've lectured a number of colleges, which I find humorous. <laughs> I used to give a lecture called the Roman road. And I would ask these students in business supply chain. I would ask the simple question and say, was Rome great because they had roads or did they have roads because they were great? Like which one came first? <laughs> and the answer is they were great because they had roads. Like Rome built the greatest empire in history up until that time because they could move things quickly. Their army could move. Their supplies could move. It was genius, right? <laughs> and that we're that today. I tell people, you can invent a pill that makes you more handsome and attractive to women. It doesn't mean anything if you can't make it and ship it to where it needs to be. <laughs> and I always tell people, you want a great bar bet, you go into a bar and say, I'll bet you... A hundred bucks, you can't find a single thing in this room that hasn't been shipped, including you, because you're part of the supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a very complex system. And if the good logisticians out there, the ones who really understand it, understand that this is A to Z process, that you have to really look at all the hops, every part of it. How can I shorten that? How can I build efficiencies in it? And one of the problems that we really have today, especially the way our education systems are done, is people are myopic. Why do this part of it? That's great. That's wonderful. What about the other umpteen parts? 
Well, that's really managed by the VP. I have no idea about this and this. Good logistics folks, good logisticians, good supply chain folks will take everything into account and they'll say, why can't I? The Japanese were really good at this in their Kanban type systems, their automotive system. They analyze things and they realize we're overanalyzing things. We're not looking at the whole chain. And so they just say, we're asked three questions, five questions. If I don't get an answer within that period of time, it, someone's done something wrong, right? So you have to make this a simple process, but you have to understand the complexity of it. Simplify it as much as you can, but have the vision to understand. I know the boxes are purchased here at the very end of the chain, but what happens if I move this here? And I'm going to give you a great example of this. There are empires out there. We call them FedEx and UPS. UPS is one of our partners. UPS found, I think, 1907. Do you know why these are $110, $120 billion a year companies? Because they did something so simple and so genius years ago that built their empire. It was simply this. They gave you a box. As simple as that sounds. So I'm in my office thinking, oh, I'm running late. And the person at the front says, why don't you just throw it in this box, fill out this form, and for two or three extra hours more than the post office, There'll be a guy in a brown here, him, and then two days later, it'll be there. And I say, really? Now, I'm old enough to remember, by the way. I know I look young and spry, but I am old enough to remember when FedEx was first doing this, where we would fill out these way bills by hand. And I'm old enough to remember when this was a shock to me that they mm-hmm. did this. When Fred Smith said, hey, let's give him a box. It was revolutionary. As stupid as it sounds. You know what Lark is? We're just going to get them a box. It's just a little bigger. The cargo is just a little more valuable, right? But that's that. those are the little things that take the entire supply chain into account. But it's a little change that changes everything. And so I always tell guys at UPS, you guys, you don't know, but you're geniuses. You really are. There's not many things in the world that a minor change like that can affect, but it is those minor changes and lots of them that will change the world and make it a better place. So. Mm-hmm. But they, by they, I say, I think they ruin the world because everyone thinks I want that tomorrow. Yeah. Before, mm-hmm. oh yeah, it'll be there in a week or, you know, no, I want it now. And it really mm-hmm. did accept the world. Well, you talked a little bit about tech and innovation and just kind of for a little bit of background, I think the way that you came on our radar and Christy and I saw you was because of this post on LinkedIn and it had a picture, right? Because you and I talked about this, it had this picture of all of this wood pallets I believe in Mexico. And it was talking about how your product was kind of changing the industry and, but also look at the environmental friendly aspect to it as well. Can you talk a little bit about that, but also sort of how you see, let's say your product or other things that are going on in the industry, pushing those more environmentally sound practices into the future? Yeah, that picture came from someone who's on my advisory board, Brian Penzel. He was down in Mexico, his family. He said, oh my gosh, we're down here and we saw the burn pits and they're burning all these pallets and there's a bunch of them down here. And I, funny, I went back to Brian. I said, when I take my family on vacation, I go to the beach. You took him to the burn pits. <laughs> yeah. um, I said, that's, that's cool. Um, he goes, well, yeah, you know, it's the best you could do at the time apparently. But so I thought, you know, I need to post this because there these burn pits and these types of Areas, not just burn pits, but dumps, you know, they're all over India and Asia and Mexico. It's funny as Americans, we think, oh, we're doing this great job. But right. Well, that was a lot of stuff that's stuffed onto container ships and they get taken to places where they don't have the same environmental standard. And this ends up in a burn pit or it ends up 
in some horrid location next to a village where it's just piling up, creating all kinds of other problems, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we really need to do is go back to the basics. You know, the environmental sort of movement has gotten kind of wild and wacky at this point. You know, we're not doing just the basics. And I, given my belief system, you know, I, I like to be a good steward of the environment, right? I, I think we need to be very sort of diligent in, in the way we do things. I don't, I don't think running off, like, you know, saying everything's going to be solar, everything's going to be wind right now, because I right. think you have to transition things over time or suddenly you're like, there's no power or refrigerators out. Well, the wind's not blowing here. There, there are great, we're, we are a great society. We will invent new systems. We will make new technology. The markets will drive that. We will continue to invent and be great at what we do, but we have to do it in a very measured way. And one, you know, one of those ways is look at a s- scenario and say, okay, there's a burn pit in Mexico and it's burning 24 seven, 365 and pallets from all over the world, which by the way, there's about 4 billion, you know, moving any time in the world, 4 billion wood pallets. And they're just, they're creating environmental disasters and not just environmental disasters. They're making people's lives miserable and who live near here. That's your job is to stand near the barn pit and get black lung. My mom's from West Virginia. So my family has full mining history. So I understand, you know, people are down in the pitch and things aren't safe. Those things exist all over the world to this day. And we need to do something about the human factors there too. So the way we do it is we move back to the way it used to be. And the original thing was reduce, reuse, recycle. I mean, those are very simple concepts. So stop using so much. You know, my grandfather had the same car for 30 years. He just fixed it, right? We don't make things to last anymore. You know, oh, that toaster's done, throw it out and get a new one. The blender's broken. Um, People used to fix things. And we used to make things fix. We had that skill set. So we need to reduce the, the, and we need to reuse and we also need to recycle things better, right? So I look at those wood pallets and I say, man, why can't someone get all those, grind those into wood pallets and make energy out of it, right? That's a much better solution. I know of a guy who invented this truck that actually grinds up tires and burns them in this really high heat plasma laser that creates more power than it uses. The solutions are out there. It's reusable containers, reusable crates is a huge one, right? Do you know how much cardboard and landfill material and, and metal is used in these things? I have a picture of one of the big data center companies that would send up truckloads every day from California to Oregon every day. And they would buy a crate for each one, $1,200, $1, and they'd have foam and metal, and then they would scrap it off every single day, a truckload of this stuff. Wow. There's a better way to do it. So we need to approach things on a, on a per-issue basis. And we say, I don't think I want to be burning pallets anymore. Is there right. a better way? I don't think I want to cut down two timber trees to build a crate that I'm going to use one time. And it is two timber trees, right? And that takes a lot of processing. And I don't want to take away jobs. People. We got to find people other ways to do these things. But it really is arcane. It's really archaic. And we need to move these things you know, on a case-by-case basis. So what can I do with those pallets? What can I do with that rubber? What can I They grind rubber and they put them on the, the sports fields now. It's a great idea, yeah. right? But... What we do at Lark is we say, hey, you're going to move 8,700 of those things. That's 8,700 crates multiplied by two trees, right? You're talking about 17,000 trees cut down to support your business. Yeah. And the people will all say, well, well, I reuse my crates. I move them back. So you put the same crate back on the truck and move it back. Wouldn't it be better to fold it folded down and we could stack you know, 
X number. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that. Right. Let's move that forward. So, you know, the environment obviously is critical. I think we need to come up with solutions that are, are rational solutions. I think we need to go back to the basics of what can I make that's reusable? But people always say, you know, uh, what's a good example of, of what I'm telling you? They asked me, I said, there's some guys that are called the car guns. They were very popular for a while and very knowledgeable about cars. And if someone asked on the phone one years later, said, well, if you could only have one car, what would you have? And the guy says, oh, it's easy. I have a 65 Chevy Note. So why? I said, because I could repair it with bubble gum and bailing wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just reliable, right? We used to build cars. I used to repair my own car. I looked at my car engine the other day and I went, got nothing for it. I can't fix it. It's so, all boxed with electronics anyway. So it's, yeah, it's like it, things a normal, get too, yeah, it's yeah. not the same. Yeah, things get too, we make things too complex. We try and solve complex problems with complex solutions and they're not complex solutions, right? Most solutions are simple. And I mean, well, what if we just didn't use as much? What if we recycled that? What if, why can't we reuse or repurpose something that we've already had? And so by building a platform and platforms are the key. I always tell people, this, this is a great invention, not because it's a phone. We call this a phone. Hey, have you seen my phone? How much do you use this as a phone? Right? Very, it's, well, it's actually a platform. And it's a platform that you put a lot of applications on. So the trick is make a platform that's really simple. Then build applications on top of that platform and utilize that a million times. Make things repairable. Right? Stop being a throwaway society. Stop being a society that says, oh, we have to solve this problem with insane levels of technology. Let's get AI to solve the problem. And next thing is like the Terminator, right? They're killing us all. But versus, hey, how about we just educate ourselves better or we learn to fix a car or we go back to the basics of things. We grow some of our own food, for example, or we we do co-ops, you know, food sharing, or we share a ride. Hey, my business partner, I need to go to the same place. I'll come pick you up. Those are the solutions that are simple that make a dramatic difference, right? So- Innovation is not some ethereal thing. The solving environmental problems are, are not a, a big ethereal thing. It's it's really simple. Turn off the light when you leave the room. Okay. These are the things we used to have. And now, now you know, we're saying we're gonna spend 80 trillion dollars to fix this problem. No, we really don't. We just need to use some common sense and let the market forces kind of do their work. <laughs> well, also I'm curious too, building on the sustainability factor innovation which you're clearly passionate about, clearly have an interest for and what you're focused on. One of the other things you're trying to do is just find ways to do it with purpose, with meaning. So tell us also a little bit about what Movement for Good is and how that ties to LARC. Yeah, so one of the things that really, one of our investors and I, we went to visit him. It's funny, I have a a picture of George Washington's prayer at Valley Forge in my office. It's actually right above my computer here. And we went to visit him and he had the same picture. And I went, oh, that's interesting, right? There's kind of booga booga stuff. But he, he had, we were having a conversation and he asked me what was on my heart besides business. And one thing that really, was really on my heart was the, the greatest evil that I think exists out there is sex trafficking and slavery. And something most people don't know is that we have more slaves in the world today than we've ever had. And we've had more sex trafficking in the world than we've ever had. And I can't be, I have a son, I have a daughter. I can't imagine the level of evil that, that that sort of represents. So Lark was partnered with a few a few organizations, International Justice Mission and some others. And we give from our crates, we give something back to them. And the idea was crates are for moving cargo, not people, 
right? And you hear these horror stories about cargo containers filled with human beings. I can't even imagine the nightmare that would be. Or the you hear about the Super Bowl in the United States, it's the number one weekend of sex trafficking. We think we think this stuff doesn't happen, but it's incredibly. Hundred thousand kids go missing every year, and they're ending up in brothels and all this other stuff. And so we really want to tie what we do to something that has a much greater meaning. And business is one thing, but if you're a if you're a twelve year old girl being brought across the border for that, I can't even imagine the level of evil and that and darkness that's in someone's heart to do something like that. So we, as far as that, that's just something that is really on our hearts and something that we really want to push out there. And then we've asked our partners, other logistics to kind of make that commitment to that you're going to give some percentage, whether it be half percent or 1% of what you do with us into some charity, whether it be Operation Underground Railroad or International Justice or something else that's on their hearts. We believe people are driven by things for a purpose that it'll land or it needs to land. But if you have business without a purpose like that, then what's the point, right? What <laughs> These giant companies say, we're worth a trillion dollars. Okay, what are you doing with it? Right, right? And they are charitable. I don't want to. I don't want to take away from that. But there could be so much more being done. So that's really what forget is. Yeah, thank you for that commitment. Yeah. Well, so you're with Lark, and you're also kind of part of movement for good. So, what sort of like similarities or overlap do you see by working on, let's say, the corporate side of Lark and the nonprofit side for movement for good in terms of? Bringing in revenue, you know, spreading the word, sharing resources. For us, it's really, it's more of a, we're a little more passive and we do spread the word about it and we're out there and we're giving back from what we're doing. But we also realize we're not the experts in it. There's people who are experts in this. And so the best thing we can do is talk to our partners out there, get people to know about it, and then pass it on to the people who are out in the field doing that level of work. And that's really the role we play. I think the role that business can play is to resource these folks out there who have this level of expertise, this level of passion to be out there doing it. One of the great ones well, is Operation Underground Railroad, Tim Ballard. Those guys are out there literally physically rescuing children. And you know, I said, I'm a guy of action. I don't, you know, I don't want to hear about, well, we're bringing awareness and all this kind of stuff. That's our job as a business because we're not the extra. But charities that you're giving to the organization, they need to be boots on the ground. And I, I mean, from the moment you rescue these kids or these women to the moment they're on their own, you know, you have to support them through the whole system. Say, okay, now you're good. It's either crisis pregnancy center. It's one thing. Okay, you've had the baby move on. Well, no, you, you now you need to help through the process. Same thing with sex trafficking. These people have gone through incredible levels of problems. You need to bring an expert to help them to get them, you know, some of them have had no formal education, right? Some of them have been trapped free. They don't know how the world works. So you've got to give them a grounding. So really our role at Lark is to bring some awareness and to help resource that and get it to, into the expert hands of the people who are on the ground rescuing kids, rescuing these young ladies who have just known nothing but despair and darkness. We're not, I wish I could, if my wife would let me, I would probably gear up and go get these guys. But at the end of the day, there are experts out there. The trick is picking the right ones to work with. Are you hearing me? So. Yeah. Certainly a lot of learnings both on both sides of the fence with this movement for good and large. What are a couple, in the, especially in the last few years, we have been through a pandemic. We've been challenged in whole new ways, which we didn't expect. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned either 
either one of those areas, how have, what have you faced and how have you overcome them? Yeah, it's tough for us because our product is one where you have to get in front of people. I'm not going to sell you a car over the internet. I'm not going to sell you a physical product. So we definitely are challenges. I had did more than one or two outside in a parking lot, 100 degree weather with a mask on my face, which was never my thing. We just had to overcome. You just The thing with being a small company and entrepreneurs, you just find the way, right? So you say, hey, can we meet you in the parking lot? Can we bring it down in an open truck? Can we do whatever we had to do to get in front of people? But things certainly slowed down, right? And so we just had to sort of weather the storm. Right now, it's interesting because we've seen a real shift. The environmental push was really big, circularity, and we're working with a number of our customers on that. Some companies do it really, really well. Some companies are just getting into it and starting to really learn circularity. And circularity, by the way, is a thing that's not just about the environment. It's about doing things more efficiently. But we've had to work with them very, very closely. The uh, the thing about getting in front of people, though, was, was really tough. And so we had to really like, dig in and find ways to be creative and so forth. But the thing that's shifted now is you had an environmental thing, the circularity had to dig in. And as we dug in, what happened is since the pandemic, things go like this. Since the pandemic, up and down, the, they, the, there's been a change into security because the, in, the economy is not great. Supply chain has gotten rough. More people are desperate. And so we're hearing a lot more suddenly about six months ago, we're having things stolen, right? We need more security. So things are up and down all the time. So what looks like a a bad solution, depending on your products, and we adjusted. So we need a security crate. So we made it. Even in those times, you adjust. And now you have another product. People say, oh, that actually will fulfill my need. That $10 million I got stolen. Maybe I'll get a million dollars stolen. Maybe I'll get nothing stolen if I switch to this system. So you have to be reactive. You have to be proactive. You have to be reactive. And that's how you do it. You look for the opportunity in the crisis. You don't use it as a, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to like more profit here. But you look for the need. You look for the opportunity. And you build to that need. But it certainly was a difficult time for us and everybody. I mean, a lot of small companies just didn't make. And we did. We're still here and we're starting to grow. So. Yeah, it's, and I'm curious to the, like, the you have the purpose factor, you have the sustainability factor, both growing for the business sector tremendously, but you also just at the baseline you have a solution to a problem. So I'm right. curious in your conversations with people, are they mostly just focused on that we need this solution, and the other things are nice add-ons? Are you having people explore? the wanting to work with you because of the sustainability factor and the purpose factor? How are kind of those conversations happening? And is it people just like, these are nice to haves, or now we're really looking for not only a solution, but one that we feel is a betterment to the society in some way too? Yeah, it depends. The answer depends almost solely on the size of the company we're working with. So if we're working with smaller companies, they're looking for a solution to their problem right now because they're trying to grow up. They're in the space. If you're working with an enterprise level company, all of the above matters and they're checking the boxes, right? And rightfully so, right? They're going to have a lot more impact than Joe's Auto Shop, who's just starting or some trillion dollar company. So they really do, it really does matter in the size company, but they definitely take it to heart. It's most companies. So a lot of companies work greenwashing and so forth, but they're not so much anymore. So those things do really come to play. They scorecard you, right? They say, how's the product? Does it serve the basic need? Is there an environmental solution? Are these guys, are they doing something from a social perspective that we agree with? 
So all of that stuff matters. It really does. Mm-hmm. I think I, it's interesting. I think when the economy slows, those sort of issues slow down a little bit. They're, they're, as much as you hate to say that is true, yeah. but people say, listen, they're thriving and they're surviving. So we meet all of those needs. We check all of those boxes. And almost accidentally, we didn't set out to do that. We set out to make a great product, as everyone should. But like I said about the hamburger earlier, you might make the greatest hamburger world. People realize, wait a second, there's something in this hamburger that makes me feel great about life. Good. Or they're giving all the better. But at the end of the day, you just, you're there for the hamburger. Baseline is make a great product. Make a great product. Um, the world's not going to be the path to your door, but... Once you have that great product, add on everything else that has that meaning and purpose and fulfillment, and people will do that. But I will tell you that the enterprise level companies, if you don't meet those criteria, they won't work with you. So we were fortunate that we do. The movement for good, for example, we didn't do that for first quarter points. We did that from almost day one. It's just something that we do, something that the belief system or culture at mark. But it is something that people do care about, and they should care about it, and we should care about it, right? But we shouldn't do it to to just check that box. We should do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. Well, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in our listener group, and you have quite a bit of entrepreneurial experience. Is there anything that you've maybe talked about in any of your lectures or tidbits of wisdom for those entrepreneurs really trying to get into the market space, not just in logistics, but just in general, you know, for those looking to get into that? Yeah, none at all. No, I'm just kidding. No, You're keeping all your secrets to yourself. No. Oh. <laughs> you, be you, know, you have any idea yes. how much those secrets are worth? Yeah. I'm going to do the cliche one because it's the absolute truth. And it's what I talked about earlier. It's just grind. You've got to yeah. grind. It is absolutely a blood sport. People will do all kinds of crazy things. You'll There will be days where your head is in your hands going, why am I doing this? You just, if you want to be an entrepreneur, and I, I, kind of teach the real side of this thing. I'm never going to sugarcoat this. Mm-hmm. It is it is growing every day. It is disappointment every day. The wins are sometimes few and far between, but the grind, if you have it and you keep pushing that rock up the hill, no matter what, uh, you'll win. But even this has been a six, seven year endeavor. And we're not where when I get granted, we had COVID and we had all this other and craziness has happened, but you just have to continue to grind. There is no magic to it. You make a good product that the world needs and you grind and you grind and you grind, knowing that the, it'll be 90% door slammed in your face and 10% success. And then someday that will reverse itself. But if your person says, I'm going to stop at the first one, first, you know, problem, first hundred problems, this is not a lifestyle for you to get a job and just be content with that. But if you're someone who is an absolute savage, who's willing to be a type A personality, who's willing to do the things that most people are embarrassed to do, who's willing to send a, an email to the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and wake up the next day surprised that they responded, that's a job for you. People do think it's all unicorns and fairy dust. And oh, you're your own boss. You work for yourself. They don't know about sort of the gut-wrenching, horrible days where things have just gone wrong. But just know that persistence is key. And there's no... My, my my book on entrepreneurship would be one page long. It really would. Just I can do see it. the title. It'd be Tinker, Grind, Destroy. <laughs> oh, if I put that there out. You go. Yes. Yes. Well, I would say disrupt, baby. But those are three things that you continually talked about that I think you could. That should be like the Lark t-shirt. Just send no, me one. T-shirt. Yeah. I just can you make it. Yeah. I, now I got to pay you a commission. I want to sell them. Uh, <laughs> it's probably I, I will tell you. Now. 
Yeah. You, you use the word disrupt. I hate the word. Right. You know what? I see only they read a book that talked about disruptors and I read it. We were talking about books earlier and I read a ton of books, but I read them on my Kindle. So mm-hmm. I never remember the titles because I'm like the visual person. And I would remember what the cover looks like. And I always end up skipping past that to start the book yeah. when I had more books. Well, on the I book tell shelf, people, I remember, you know, I give people this example. I mean, yeah, disrupt is not strong enough for the world day. It's not, oh, they disrupted. They changed. I always give this example. If little Johnny in the schoolhouse is causing a problem, chewing gum, not paying attention, and he's disruptive. Right. But little Johnny who burns the school to the ground, yeah. that's an entrepreneur. Right. right? I'm just trying to help you get buyers yeah. for your book. Just yeah. I yeah. I know, We're little almost bit. there. We're going to write that together. Yeah. Yeah. And you can yeah. illustrate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I can't illustrate or do PowerPoint, but I can do all the other stuff. <laughs> exactly. We'll talk later. <laughs> yeah, we should. No, no, but I'm very serious. You know, this concept of disruption, oh, yeah. they disrupted a market. It's just not big enough for big yeah. vision, right? Yeah. Like if you think about, someone asked me, someone at, was it Google or something one day? And someone said to me, what, if you could do anything with this crate that you wanted to do, what would you say? I would destroy the wood crate market. And she looked at me, she said, it's kind of mean. I said, audibly. I said, but it's true. I said, because that's what real entrepreneurship is. I said, we're not on cart, horse and cart, right, anymore. That that industry was destroyed. My mother was in typography, I said earlier. That industry was destroyed. It was sad, but we moved on to something different. So I didn't, didn't, you know, Apple didn't come out in the world to disrupt the computer industry. They came to destroy what was. And they did, right? And their concept was think different. It's great. The two greatest words ever put together in advertisers think different, right? And so you have to be willing to do that. And so this idea of it, I don't want to teach our kids to be disruptors. You just, you're just disrupting. My my kids are disruptive. I'm happy, right? My son invents an You need to destroy it or don't. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, if you're going to, I told my son, if you're going to fight me, you better kill me because, you know, I want you to be that kind of guy, right? But, at the end of the day, I don't want to invent a new way of doing something. I want to invent a new paradigm. Mm-hmm. And I want to invent a different way of doing it all together. And that's really what we're after. And I know people think, wow, this guy is aggressive. But that is really, at the end of the day, what moves us forward in the world. And there are a million examples of it. The Wright brothers flew a plane that flew for 12 seconds. Today, I can get on a plane and fly to Copenhagen and eat a donut and drink a mm-hmm. Coke. And somehow we did that in less than 100 years, right? Or 100 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And so that's destructive. We're no longer taking steamships, thank God, across the mm-hmm. ocean, right? right? So it's disruptive. And having said that, I do find something, I do find an interesting shift happening. We are going backwards to move forward right now. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is one of the, one of the technology I think is super cool is Hyperloop. This train and a tube that can go 700 miles per hour. And all these companies are working on it sort of in a frenzy. I think, wow, we're going back to the industrial age of, of trains. It's just like they're not switching trains. They're super fast, hypersonic trains and vacuum tubes. And even the vacuum tube, old buildings from the 1800s had vacuum tubes to move things around. This mm-hmm. is not. But like I said, if you understand history, you say, how can I make that? How can I take that and make it this? Mm-hmm. That is destructive to what exists now. So suddenly I have a train that goes faster than a plane. That's really cool, right? Mm-hmm. So, a little bit scary, I'll be honest, but yes, cool. I'm no, the, only, the really scary thing is AI. I'll be honest. That's, yeah. 
That is scary technology. And I don't, yeah. I'm not afraid of most tech, but that one is scary. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, this I'm is still trying to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you guys so much for your time. This has been of terrific. Course. We appreciate your insight and your stories. But of course, name of the podcast, Logistics with Purpose, you clearly embody our same shared ideals and values. So what does that phrase mean to you? What is logistics with purpose? How would you sum that up? What does it mean to you? Oh, it it simply means utilizing the standard of the world and how we move things to change things, right? Not just in the process itself, but in in how we utilize the resources we get, the blessings we get from doing, right? We all have to be giving back, but if you can change the market space and you can utilize those resources at the same time, you've really succeeded. I've never started a company of any kind that didn't give something back. Even when I made those little tickle monsters, you could adopt them for kids in the hospital. You could take them to kids in the hospital. Wow. You know, it's, you have to utilize what, you know, the resources and blessings you have to pass those down to other people while changing markets. And the more destructive you are to those markets, the more resources you have to continue to do that. We, it, it's like anything, you, it's called logistics with purpose, but uh, shouldn't everything just be business with purpose, right? Every right. business should be out there with purpose. And, it's too narrow of a concept to, to just be logistics. And I think that what you're doing here is amazing. I think just taking taking the idea of what is really the least sexy industry in the world. It's yeah, true. I really, it really is true. Really, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> hey, did you get that paperwork there? Yeah, it's <laughs> But taking that and realizing how important it is to not just the existence of our world today, but what we can do with it to make it even better, to make things faster, to make things more efficient manufacture things in a better way to make products that the world really needs. I think you're really onto something here. I'm so glad that you do this podcast and that you you it's out the world and you get people thinking in a very different way. Yeah. Thank you. Sam, we're really happy to come on today. This has been wonderful, but we don't want to close out without giving the audience an opportunity. How can we learn more about you and Lark and connect with you and all the things, you know, technology moving forward in 2023? How do we Book recommendation. Know, so our listeners know how to follow up with you. Yeah. So you can learn more about Lark on our website. It's real simple. Lark.co, not com. We didn't want L-A-R-C. to pay for, we didn't want to pay, we didn't want to pay for the M. So it's L-A-R-C.co. And you know, you, when you start a company, you got to be kind of frugal. So we just- Do they only charge you less because you're only using two of the letters instead of three? You're like, we're a small company. Just use yeah, .co. Exactly. The friends and family discount, I guess. So it's L-A-R-C.co. And I, I'm going to give out my email address. People can email me directly. I'm just sam at lark.co, L-A-R-C.co. Please feel free to contact me. I would love to, to talk to everyone out. We're always advancing new technologies and always looking for new projects to do. And would love to talk to some of your listeners out there. And it's really, really appreciative that they're out there listening to this and appreciate what you all are doing too. Perfect. I should say, listen, I live in Tennessee. What y'all are doing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. appreciate your wisdom, your insight, and just talking about innovation. And I feel like we covered a lot of good things that are going to be relevant to people in a variety of ways. So thank you so much for what you're doing to to further business with purpose. We hope that continues to catch fire around the world because that way more people are destroying and building good things. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.